All right, hello. Uh, this is Matt, and <laughs> this is supposed to be a discussion with uh, one of my favorite authors, Walter Kern, who's having a few technical difficulties at the moment, um, but he will be here, from what I understand. So it's just going to take uh, a few minutes for him to get here. Um, the The reason... I wanted to have uh, Walter on this week. He's, uh, for those who don't know him, he's a um, pretty well-known author, very funny writer. Uh, he had a one of his books uh, made into a movie starring George Clooney called Up in the Air. Uh, but he's written a bunch of very funny novels, satirical novels, uh, including one that I really like called The Unbinding. <clears throat> and um, he wrote a, he's on Substack now, wrote a great essay uh, when he first came on Substack called The Bullshit, which I highly recommend that everybody read. Uh, it's, it's sort of great stuff on um, the, the ridiculousness and uh, sort of obvious, transparent um, uh, unbelievability of modern media. Walter's a... a uh, a veteran of Time Magazine, so he kind of comes from that world, uh, the same world that spawned a lot of the people who, who made Spy back in the day. Um, but that's that's where he's from. He wrote those kinds of features. Anyway, he wrote a, he tweeted something earlier this week, um, and this is, this is what he tweeted. Uh, is it my fault I took my liberal teachers seriously when they urged me to read Catch-22 about the corrupt mindlessness of bureaucratic rule? The very rule they and their cohort now celebrate nonstop and abhor seeing questioned. Sorry, I took you seriously, you big sellouts. And you know I, what? What? What this meant to me, and this this sort of prompted me to write a, uh, an article that eventually be, uh, was titled um, "Vaccine Aristocrats Strike Again." It's just you, you know a lot of us grew up in this era. Um, where, you know, of sort of liberal indoctrination, where we, um, you know, we, ha we all had question authority bumper stickers, and we worship books like Catch-22, uh, and, uh, and 1984, but, but especially those um, satirical novels that, you know, we all inherently had this appreciation for the idea that bureaucracies were um sort of by their nature corrupt and uh, untrustworthy and ridiculous and there's so much about the current situation um with especially with the pandemic response that reminds us of uh both of us both but Walter and me of um <clears throat> of that of those books you know, and I think when I when I talked to him about this he was talking about how um, you know, the changing requirements about mask use and how many days you have to spend in isolation, that that reminds him of the constantly escalating number of missions uh, with, you know, with the pilots in Pianosa. For me, it was the, um, it's the great loyalty oath crusade where, you know, you're going to need to be tested every every 10 seconds, as soon as you complete your last test, you're going to have to get a new one, <laughs> that sort of thing, um, which was sort of predicted by this novel. Anyway, 
that's that's sort of what led to this this uh, article that I wrote about, um, you know, a comedian Jimmy Kimmel uh, who who should come from the same world that we do, but all of a sudden they're they're uh, advocates and sort of police for um, for for this for these bureaucracies. Uh, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, to us. So anyway, he's he's still uh, he's still having some technical difficulties. He will be here, from what I understand. But um, why don't I just open this up until until he gets in, and uh, and and we'll uh, we'll go from there. So I think, let's see, uh, Roger. Uh, I think are are, are you you're up. No, Roger, you gotta unmute yourself. Hey, Matt, um, can you hear me now? I can, I can. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Um, I'm just here to uh, lend support. I, I love <laughs> your pieces. I look forward to hearing from you weekly and whenever. Uh, you, uh, you give me hope, and there's very little of that to go around these days, so. Oh, well, that's, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> and I won't take up any more of your time. Oh, okay. Well, th- thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, but uh, I don't know if it, hope it's not that hopeless out there. It's it's just, it's just very, very frustrating. Uh, you know, especially with, um, I don't know, did you have that same upbringing um, where with the whole sort of question authority attitude. And because for me, the shocking thing is, is watching people that I grew up with suddenly change their attitude about stuff like this. And that that's been what's tough to take. Yeah. Um, I think you touched on it earlier when you were talking, or maybe it was in your previous piece where you were talking about uh, how Dick Cheney is now cozying up with, with uh, the left or the former left and, and, uh, you know, going back to those wars uh, in the Middle East, uh, it, it, I never, I never got on board. I mean, I smelled a rat from the get-go, and and it just uh, tainted everything thereafter. Uh, and I, I really don't see a distinction between the two parties so much anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's tough. It's definitely tough. I mean. And, and to your question, I, I was raised uh, to be a skeptic, uh, uh, you know, a healthy disrespect for authority is what my father used to call it. You know? Yeah, I mean, that. so that's the part that I don't get. It's like, wh- where did that go? I mean, I, I was thinking today even about just the pharmaceutical industry, like before the, the pandemic, I, I used to get pitched by activists um, you know, like sort of liberal lefty activists, uh, you know, once every couple of weeks, it felt like who were trying to get me to do stories about everything from Rick Perry's relationship to the makers of, you know, to Merck and Gardasil. Um, you can remember he was pushing vaccinations for everybody um, and uh, to the you know, various amendments that the people try to introduce in Congress to mandate um, uh, prescriptions of uh, sort of Ritalin-like drugs for ADHD uh, and, you know, the, or the Tamiflu disaster or, 
you know, I mean, there are so many different stories and all of a sudden this notion that, um, you know, that, that the pharmaceutical industry and the NIH and the FDA and the CDC are, uh, yeah, you know, another example of uh, sort of classically regulatorily captured, um, uh, you know, bureaucracy. Uh, it's just disappeared. It's like it's like the same the same people who were skeptics ten minutes ago um, are suddenly uh, you know in this different place now. And I, I get that a lot of that has to do with this the culture war and the fact that they can't stand the people who are defying these bureaucracies. Um, have, but have, you, mm-hmm. have you heard some of the stuff that's going around about a mass hypnosis? I, I, I don't know what to think of it, but it's definitely got me thinking. Oh, you mean the ma- the mass formulation or whatever yeah, yeah. it is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Robert Malone. You know, I didn't see the show. I, I read about it because um, my old magazine, Rolling Stone, yesterday yeah. did a did a piece on you know sort of the people calling for a boycott. I you know I don't I don't know about that. I mean I I'm not sure exactly what he's saying. If he's if he's saying that there's you know, a kind of mass psychogenic illness. I think I think I could be uh, talked into uh, that because there's, there's clearly been a lot of that going on. We don't use that term mass hysteria anymore, but uh, just in the last five years, there have been so many stories that are clearly uh, examples of people losing their minds when they shouldn't. You know, wh- whether it's like the um, the sonic weapons story. Right, uh, you know, I mean, like, you know, that's that's an example where. Uh, oh, hang on a sec. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Just got an update from Walter. Anyway, um, he's coming. So, uh, but um, but yeah, no, I don't know about that. I, I, I'm clearly not an expert, but I do, but I do know about media panics, and I've studied that quite a bit, and. Um, you know, there's a lot of that going on, and that's 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 been both a commercial and political strategy for a while now. And uh, yeah, it's odd. I you know I, I I don't know exactly what Dr. Malone was saying. Um, never never spoken to him, never interviewed him, uh, and didn't hear the segment, so I wouldn't want to comment too much further on that. I I don't know that he's the only one that's that's. Uh talking about this but he certainly has shown up in a lot of different places all of a sudden and is definitely uh outside the box i guess you could say he's he's uh he's an interesting study i'd be curious to hear what you uh conclude about him yeah i mean look the first thing about him is that um it's a classic example of the streisand effect because you know, he, he, all the efforts to to ban him have have just brought more attention to oh, what, yeah. whatever he's saying. So, um, yeah. but uh, but we'll see. I don't know. I don't, um, have to have to uh, check it out, and then then when when I do, I'll uh, I'll I'll report back to you. Okay. <laughs> but uh, hey. thanks, Roger. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. All right, thank, thank you, and uh, just just to update everybody, what Walter's Walter's still trying. He's he's trying to get in. He's having some issues, and uh, both I and Colin apologize for this, but it's coming. So um, 
But uh, I'll take... Uh, let's uh, open it up for one more person, if that's possible. Uh, anyway, thanks, Roger. I appreciate it. Oh, thank, thank you. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. I think Nick is next. Hey, Matt. Hey, Nick. How's it going? Sorry uh, it's about going. This. No, you're fine. Um, so, and you've been touching uh, on this in your writing for a while now, and maybe you're sick of talking about it or even exploring it, but uh, I, I think you're noticing, like I am, this this weird kind of, especially if you were alive for part of the 80s, this thing that you experienced, like a different version of the culture war where like all of the puritanical and censorious kind of impulses and uh, media moments and tons of, uh, you know, flashpoints of these major things, like, came largely from the right wing, and now it seems like it's, like, you know, liberals taking up every kind of moral panic uh, to varying degrees of absurdity, like, the, you know, entire underlying ideology of where that comes from has shifted, uh, and and I guess part of me is asking for your deeper take in that, did it really shift, or was it that way all along? And just kind of personally, do you... Because uh, I've struggled with a version of... Because I'm, I'm definitely done with being like a liberal and a Democrat, but also when I think of certain things that just annoy me in the culture, I, I want to react to them in a harsh way, but without coming off like a, you know, lowest common denominator reactionary. And I wonder if you struggle with the same thing or if part of your whole personal evolution and your writing is based on the premise that like you stop struggle and you just make a knee-jerk decision based on what you're feeling <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question um no i mean I've, I've definitely i've definitely struggled with this whole thing uh and yeah because because i grew up and I, I was not terribly into politics as a young person. I mean, a, a little bit. Both of my parents um, were, to varying degrees, involved in politics. My father was more like in, into reporting. My mother volunteered for campaigns and that sort of thing. Um, but mainly, what attracted me to liberal politics originally was, I mean, I, I, it, it was more things like the movie Animal House, right? Like it's this idea that. Um, the Republicans were these uh, uptight, dishonest squares who were trying to, you know, use authority to crack down on people they didn't like, on thoughts they didn't like, on ideas they didn't like, and um, you know, the the other side, the good side, was the one that wasn't afraid of other people's opinions that you know, was welcoming of, um, you know, every kind of idea and person and, you know, didn't pick on the nerds and um, didn't bully people intellectually, physically in any, in any way. And they were funny, right? Like, that's another crucial element to this whole thing was this, this sense of humor, this idea of, you know, uh, smashing pieties and... Uh, you know, not kowtowing to um, you know the various cultural shibboleths uh, that everybody else was. You know, I think about Richard Pryor and Bill Hicks and people like that. Um, and that was like that was the central element to being what what I thought was a political liberal at the time was this whole idea of freedom of thought. Um, 
you know, separate and apart from from everything else. That was a that was a key thing, uh, and uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I think it has been a real switch. Um, hang on a second, Wal- Walters. I think here, so I'm just gonna write to him, write a note to him. Uh, and um, yeah, I think it's real. I mean, what w- what would lead you to think it isn't? It wasn't a real switch, or is it just that the the people who are who are doing this are no longer or, or have like Democrats become Republicans and vice versa? Or what, or what do you think has happened? Well, that's kind of what I'm trying to get deeper insight into because, uh, you know, uh, in, in the eighties and nineties, it was really easy to just kind of come to the thought of whoever is being like somebody who's, you know, trying to take up uh, the media sphere to, like, complain about, like, you know, the sentence wasn't nice enough to George H.W. Bush or something like that. I could kind of get a get a read and a beat on what that kind of person is, which is just, you know, somebody that's lame and a humorless dick and probably also has uh, a crazy amount of reverence for the Republicans. But now, um, it's, it's, it's really hard to... Like, if anything comes up, even if my personal opinion on it is I will see, like, a an over-the-top reaction from a liberal that I don't agree with and then an over-the-top reaction with a conservative that I don't believe with. Like, one of the funniest things probably is the Dave Chappelle thing, if only because, like, the most over-the-top reactions are largely from people that, like, didn't actually watch it. Like, they're either... You know, kind of the, the vanguard of, like, free conservative expression and, like, triggering the libs or people saying that, you know, this wasn't uh, uh, reverent enough for the, uh, you know, identities and people that we identify, you know, a, a common kinship or struggle with. But also, neither of us actually watched it. We're just doing the culture war for the sake of the culture war. Whereas me, I'm, you know, a leftist. I vote Green Party. I'm registered independent. But, you know, I watched the special and I'm like, I didn't think anything of this was particularly controversial. And this is probably interesting ideas floating in the uh, cultural space that I wish people would actually come to with, you know, some degree of nuance or understanding. But like, but but it is it is very stark that, you know, the kind of underlying political ideology or baseline that I used to come from is now the one kind of working the most cynically. Oh, I think. You're... <laughs> oh, hold on a second, Walter. Are you there? Yeah, we've we've had a conference here. We're having a we're having a marital um, dispute on how to uh, get this app to work. But I uh, I think it's working now. Uh, okay, excellent. Sorry about that, Nick. <laughs> Apologies for the interruption. Uh, so yeah, we were just talking, uh, you know, about um, whether people of whether sort of the old school liberals have actually changed or what, or what actually happened, uh, between, you know, the eighties and now, uh, I think, you or, know, next- or I guess the version of what I'm asking is what do you think is the, the thing underlying this type of person that like looks to anything in the popular culture that they feel that they've got some sort of personal stake in that they've got to come up with like the most insane reaction to possible. Like if it is just to, cast a spotlight on their uh, 
their particular thing or raise themselves up or if it's you know socially encouraged like where the hell is this thing coming from and why does it keep uh shifting around and never actually dying well i had a psychiatrist once and i when i came in with some dysfunction or problem he said what happened right before that <laughs> and, 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 and so i would say what happened right before this and what happened right before this was social media um it has created a a sort of hyper consensus engine because these these ridiculous takes that you're talking about are all just exaggerations of a basic take it's it's basically an arms race that's going on now <laughs> in, in 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 which people attempt to agree more intensely than they agreed before. Um, and so I, 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 I do credit social media. At least that's the place where we see these takes. You know, we don't tend to hear them by, by a CB radio or, you know, over the phone necessarily. But there's something about this CERN particle accelerator of, of opinion that we call Twitter, etc., which 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 seems to which seems to inflate the the craziness. Now, whether the liberals have well, changed? I, oh, sorry. What whether the liberals have changed? You're damn right, they've changed. I remember them. <laughs> I, I mean, I remember they used to be sort of gentle, interesting, controversial, humorous people, and now they're strident um, ideologues. Who love every institution which they professed to detest and suspect in the old days, and, and no sense uh, of humor. Yeah, and no sense of humor. <laughs> and weirdness is something that they call out rather than try to cultivate, unless it's the weirdness that's already been pre-approved. At which point they try to, you know, compete to inhabit it more completely than anyone else. <laughs> well, and, you know, in, in terms of social media generating a lot of, like, e extremely uh, all-over-the-place takes, part of me does kind of appreciate it on some level because some genuinely good humor does come out of it. I mean, like, Matt, I, I mean, your show and your writing and, you know, like, Chapo Trap House was, like, a big political awakening for me, and it was kind of built off out of responding to the, just the the hyper mask off behavior and words of these people suddenly with like this big public platform so that you could problematize in a hilarious way, every stupid thing that they say to each other that they think that they're going to get like accolades for. So I, I guess I'm not against it necessarily, but, but that is an interesting perspective. Well, I mean, yeah, but look at Matt's a dissident in this community. He may, <laughs> he may, he may be disappeared before this uh, call in is over, you know, the mainstream folks who are driving this um, are actually on the hunt right now for a sense of humor. If they find any, <laughs> In the landscape, uh, they they will launch an arrow. I mean, uh, I have very funny friends who were last night on Twitter who aren't this morning, and I mean that actually. Wait, um, that really happened? Yeah. Oh yeah. I woke up this morning to find one of my favorite accounts. Uh, you know, a guy named Clifton Duncan, a Broadway performer who has been especially critical of. Broadway's COVID policies and their effects on working theater people. He's just gone, you know, tens of thousands of followers. Uh, 
you know, I don't know if when Biden called out yesterday, you know, he called the the, the the huntsman to go out and track down misinformation. I don't know if he's part of that uh, purge, Jeez. but, you know, it happens every day. You find it, it's like Argentina. You know, it's a, you wake up and one of your friend's houses doesn't exist anymore, you know. Um, or, or, you're, or you're being hauled into a, a, an airplane to be flown over the... Uh, the Pacific and pushed out the, yeah, pushed out the door. Yes, in, in cyberspace though, it's metaphorical at least. I I, right? I, hesitate, I hesitate to use the real suffering of people right. who actually did disappear as an allegory for what is as yet a rather symbolic kind of disappearance. That's but, true. But at the same time, if we're not allowed to overreact now. We don't get to react at all later. So. Right, right, right. Um, well, anyway, Walter, thank you. Welcome to, uh, yeah, yeah. to the show, and that thanks for uh, for coming in. And uh, I'm so sorry that uh, we, we <laughs> you had to go through such an odyssey to get here. Uh, I introduced you a little bit. Um, you know, before you you came on and talked about the reason that I wanted. To that I was hoping to talk to you today about, you know, the tweet about Catch-22 earlier this week, which was the ended up prompting that column I wrote uh, mm-hmm. this week. Um, but I thought maybe, uh, you know, maybe we could start there. Like, uh, mm-hmm. we, we talked about this a little bit on the phone. Like, um, what, what novelist would, would do the best job of capturing... Uh, some some of the craziness going on uh, right now. Well, it's been a progression, you know. I mean, uh, about a year ago, it would have been someone like Kafka who talks about you know these open ended crimes and 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 sort of um, insoluble cosmic mysteries that the individual gets caught up in and never has an explanation for. But but it is, I would say, to cut to the chase now, somebody like Joseph Heller, because we're now in an absurd sort of carousel of bad routines. And that's what Catch-22 is. I just rewatched the 1970 Mike Nichols movie last night to prepare for this. Oh, and excellent. I mean... And I mean just a few outtakes you know you've got these guys living on a bomber base you know in the mediterranean and they you know they're dying one by one their planes are getting shot down and they want to get out of it but the colonel in charge keeps raising the number of missions you have to fly in order to you know retire from from the bombing uh life and you know it And that reminds me of the vaccines. Um, You know, you'll you'll need six. You'll need seven. No. Um, Then, of course, the great sort of comic uh, conceit of of the whole novel is that the base is slowly turning into a capitalist hell. Um, (laughs) Milo Minderbinder, you know, the the ambitious impresario um, is selling the parachutes in Egypt for cotton. Um, you know, the, the bomber pilots wake up in the middle of runs and find out their parachutes are gone. It's because 
this syndicate which has developed out of their base has sold them um and 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 in the end uh minder binder does a, a total deal with the germans which is they will buy up this excess cotton which he's spent all his money on and gone broke on if he will agree to bomb the base himself so that the germans don't have to <laughs> and, and, and I'm sorry, I, I look at COVID a little bit like that. You know, we will agree to destroy our society for you, um, China or, you know, World Financial Organization. Um, if you agree to, uh, you know, it, literally our greatest product at the moment, this vaccine, our most expensive and uh, profitable export and so on is is the result of our suffering and isn't seeming to cure it either frankly uh, from my perspective since every single person i know who's gotten the booster in la is now asking me for recommendations on you know zinc and other vitamins to, <laughs> to take um so you know what whoever it was that you know the famous saying that the capitalist will end up hanging himself or and he'll you know he'll sell you he'll sell the revolutionary the rope to hang himself well that th that's kind of the situation i see us in it's as though there is only one corporation in charge right now and that is some pharma slash gov slash tech conglomerate or maybe it's called blackrock or you know vanguard and it is literally Taking, making a great profit opportunity out of the suffering of society, you know. Oh, you can't go out? We'll sell you virtual, uh, you know, Zoom technology. Oh, you know, um, you're sick? We'll sell you yet another booster. But you've got to wait to get better from the current uh, variant you're suffering from so you can take the next booster, which is <laughs> actually happening to friends of mine. Yeah, you, um, you were telling me that story. I, that's like that's such an unbelievable thing. I'm, like it, people people rushing to get better so that they can get boosted again. There are uh, all these call. There are all these college kids. I live in Montana. There are all these college kids who are home from their universities for break, and they all because they hang out together. They all got and they all had to be vaccinated in order to be at college in the first place. So they're all double vaccinated, and they've all got COVID. And they're waiting for their COVID to pass because they have to get vaccinated again. They have to get boosted again to go back to school. <laughs> I mean, waiting to get better from the thing that you wasn't prevented so that you can try to prevent it again is not. It, that's Joseph Heller. I mean, <laughs> it really is. You know, it's funny. I was, th this morning I was remembering the um, the. Uh, the deal that um, that the Biden administration did to buy 500 million doses, uh, Pfizer doses, yes. like r rather than put through a vaccine a waiver or a patent waiver so that people can actually make the drug themselves, um, right. uh, they do this deal with the super expensive deal with with uh, with Pfizer, which, by the way, um, of all their contractors is the one that charged the most uh but they buy 500 million doses uh and this is the one that has to be transported at like minus 80 degrees celsius or something like that 
Yes. And so it, it, it kind of reminds me of the, the Milo Mindebinder. Like, it, it's going to be the chocolate-covered cotton thing. Like, you, you're, you're going to end up uh, with this massive package of, uh, of vaccines, a lot of which are probably not going to end up being used or be able to be used, but... They bought them anyway. You know what I mean? It's gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna, somebody's gonna make money off of it. You know. I, I, I remember watching a speech a couple of weeks ago about all the tests that were gonna be arriving in the mail for me, and I keep checking the mail. Um, you know, uh, I, I see Bill Gates buy a uh, buy a testing company. I think a lot of people are like, okay, here's the here's the catch twenty two of COVID. If we emerge from it. We may have destroyed our biggest interest industry, which is COVID. If we don't emerge of it, we may emerge from it. We may have destroyed ourselves. Um, so, mm, what do we do? Yeah, uh, tough choice. You know, and uh, and 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 I hate to be that way, but you know, it, here's the here's the problem. If you were talking about with the liberal mindset now, in 1970. The Vietnam War was raging hot and was in one of its most terrible stages, you know, post-Tet Offensive. You know, they're, they're, I don't know where they were with the bombing, uh, but it wasn't good. America was able to laugh or at least cry in a literary way at books like Slaughterhouse-Five, at, 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 you know, um, Vonnegut's story of the Dresden firebombing, um, at, at, at movies like Catch-22, at MASH, which, the movie of which the came movie. out this same year that Catch-22 did. We seem to have lost entirely the ability to be in pain and understand things satirically at the same time. What is this sudden... What is this sudden prohibition on dark humor in the midst of crisis? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it either because, yeah, it's funny that you point that out because the the Vietnam period, I mean, part of the, part of what made that war so, I mean, I, I didn't, I was a, a baby when, when that all happened, so I don't remember it, but, you know, yeah. from, from, from reading about it, um, you know the the whole idea of this in, uh, bureaucracy that was so inhumane that it you know it, like it, it had to it had to come up with a metric for success because the war itself had no point so uh, you know they, they they were they were doing things like body counts and truck kills uh, so they could come up with a measurement uh, for and I think that you know that's that's kind of a little bit like what it's about bureaucracy ultimately mm -hmm. you know there's a there's a scene in Catch Twenty Two. in which a doctor, they're, they're sitting there on the shore looking out at the ocean, and a plane crashes into the ocean. And someone has a chart showing that the doctor standing next to him is on the plane. And he mourns the death of the doctor, even though giving preference to the chart in front of him, even though the doctor's standing next to him saying, I'm not on the plane. <laughs> um, and, and, and so, you know, there you have the bureaucrats preference for their, uh, you know, for their numbers or their, their forms 
or documents over living reality. And that's really the situation that we face now. Um, you know, uh, we, we actually, you know, I, I think face it even more intensely than in Vietnam because those stories of body counts and of, you know, bombing runs that are deemed a success because so many tons were dropped, you know, as though you could measure progress in a war by the tonnage of explosives expended. Um, all those metrics and, and strange bureaucratic, uh, surreal uh, measurements were being used far away and reported to us. But now they're being used at home. They're being used of us. I have had, I was at the hospital yesterday in, an, in, a, in a state, Montana, which I read constantly in the New York Times, is almost out on its knees from COVID. Mm. I, and I had to go to the hospital. The place was so empty, I could barely find anyone <laughs> to give me directions to the radiology department where I presumed millions would be having their lungs examined but weren't. And, and so what am I to say? Is the doctor standing next to me the reality or is the report that he's on the plane? Is the empty hospital the reality or is the report I read that here in Trump country, quote unquote, we're just staggering under the weight of the unvaccinated Rube COVID victims? <laughs> I mean, I mean that was that was the uh, that was the, the root of that bizarre story about um, Oklahoma, you know, with all, with the, the 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 horse paste eaters who were who were so numerous that they were leaving gunshot victims outside, and and no, everybody repeated that story. Nobody stopped to think like, well, there's probably not that many gunshot victims in rural Oklahoma. I, I, I have to. I have to tell you, Matt, the middle of the country is being treated much as the middle of the country was treated back during the Indian Wars. You know, these are like stories of strange tribes committing atrocities out in the middle of nowhere. And, and everybody in the metropolitan you know, areas is reading these newspapers. Oh, the Comanche just, you know, <laughs> bore off another 30 white women into slavery or whatever. I mean, it's the, or, or the stories they would tell about Mormon polygamy to, to sort of as pot boilers in the East Coast newspaper back in the middle of the 19th century. And living in Montana, which I promise you is no longer like it's no longer the revenant. We aren't warming ourselves inside of bear carcasses. It's, <laughs> it's an you know, it's an incredibly sophisticated state with airline connections to the world without sometimes even one stop. And yet we're being we're being described as though we're on the precipice of savagery. Um, and, and, and I saw that with the Oklahoma thing. I was in South Dakota last year when I saw, uh, uh, when I heard an NPR report that the hospital in Rapid City, which I was one mile from, was, was about to collapse. And I drove over, you know, and I had a thousand parking spots to choose from. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and then when I rechecked the text of the NPR story, I saw that it was a speculative story, which interviewed a doctor about what might happen if things got so much worse. And so I've had that experience over and over 
of being reported on as a resident of the great frontier and then checking, you know, outside my door to see whether or not it was accurate and finding it wasn't, you know. Well, well, Walter, you mean you, 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 you come from the journalism world. I was telling people, yeah, you, yes. you, you, you wrote for time and everything. You did all those features, which I, I, I was in, I was, you know, talk about liberalism. I was a columnist for Harper's. I was at the national correspondent for the new Republic, you know, three, three and a half owners back or whatever. I mean, I'm joking, maybe just two. And, uh, um, so, so I know what journalistic standards are. I used to have to meet them myself, you know? Uh, so what do you think is going on? Is, is it, is it just, is it dishonesty? Is it cluelessness? What is like, what's, what's your take on, on that? Kind well, of we thing? know one thing we know is that it's not mass formation psychosis <laughs> because, because the AP fact checked that with a New York university professor and found out that there's no such thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, what's going on is, listen, scapegoating. I mean, that's the old-fashioned word for it. In that, in that thing that you wrote about, that Jimmy Kimmel routine mm-hmm. about anti-vax Barbie, okay? It said it was available only in Kentucky and Florida. Yeah, I, that now, was amazing, I thought, yeah. So, dude, we, we, you know, the left loves to talk about dog whistles, that's not a dog whistle. That's a dog horn. You know, <laughs> Kentucky, you know, deliverance, you know, no teeth, you know, stupid people. And enough of that. If, if, if le- the left could not solve the problem of two Americas that RFK so eloquently spoke of, it's now decided that the America that is left behind, that it used to profess you know, great care for and ambitions for should just be annihilated with ridicule and, um, you know, a, a sort of mockery that that dehumanizes them and renders them irrelevant. That's a sign of real failure. I mean, to be serious, that's a sign of real failure on the left when it starts making fun of basically poverty in order to advance its cosmopolitan agenda right right well yeah clearly i thought that was the subtext of the kimmel thing which is you know dumb uneducated hicks right we're just we're just going to go there basically was that 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 was the idea behind that one it was it was well done as these things were uh, as these things go but uh that's that was the joke basically right um, oh, and the other joke was it comes with a ventilator, uh, which right. suggests which suggests these people are dying, you know, and we could have a laugh over it. Right. I mean, right. I don't want to laugh over anyone on a ventilator in my lifetime if I can help it, you know. But but we're already there on network television. Right. Right. So, okay, no, another journalism related question. The, you, you and I have both done this job, and I, um, I, th- I think, you know, in the eighties and nineties, the the kind of reigning attitude of most most journalists was they didn't really care that much. I mean, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but they 
they were sufficiently detached from um, the subject that they were more concerned about whether they were getting things right uh, than whether they were sending the right message or whatever it was. Uh, do you think right. there's, a, there's a little bit of a change there, too? Because um, I feel A like massive I, change. Yeah, okay. Most journalism now is about other journalism. Most right. journalism... Most journalism now is international warfare between, you know, the so-called legacy and prestige outlets and all their competitors, which are accused of being everything from in the pockets of Vladimir Putin to, you know, waging insurrection on the U.S. government. Fact checking and the hunt for disinformation and misinformation is now almost the whole of the job. In fact, there I'd say 98% of journalism is committed without ever leaving the laptop screen. Oh, well, that's it, true. It, yeah. You know, and, and so, and that's one of the openings for these whopper stories about the real America, which they only visit when they go to the Iowa caucuses, you know, uh, <laughs> everybody thinks that because they went to a diner during a presidential primary, that they, they, they know the heartbeat of grassroots America. You can, and one of the reasons they can tell so many stories so inaccurately about people in places that they aren't is that they don't even have a fact check in memory about being to those places, let alone a friend who lives there. And they can expect from their audience total incuriosity about the truth. So you get a spiral of, you get a spiral of uh, affirmation and reaffirmation that becomes almost completely detached from reality. And and journalism, you know, it's funny to see this term fact check now used every day on Twitter. Remember Matt when that was kind of a specialty term that only we knew as journalists? Right. You know, um it was inside baseball, a fact checker and fact checking department. It was most probably famously evoked in Bright Lights, Big City, Jay McInerney's hyper-elitist novel about cocaine and the New New Yorker fact-checking department. The Bolivian Merchant Powder. Mm -hmm. Right. Now now our inside baseball as journalists is for everybody because the process of journalism has now become the story rather than the – supposed outcome of journalism, which is going somewhere and getting the facts. Right, right. Yes. So, okay, last last question about this before I, I, I want to uh, open this up to have so some people can ask yeah. some questions. But, I, but when I first started um, doing campaign journalism, I, I sort of went through a crisis about some of the things that you were talking about because I was realizing that every event we went to was like stage managed and you know even though we would have a byline that said uh you know Helena Montana or whatever it was we weren't actually meeting anybody new we were talking to the same people we were on the plane with the whole time so right. i would like run a mile in any direction 
uh, every time we did a can- campaign stop and just randomly talk to anybody, and, and that would be the story that I, that I would write rather than whatever the the speech was about. And that was my like, sort of reality check because I think there was something going on in the business back then about. You know, people, as you said, everybody was just more and more on their screens at the time. They were they were less and less on the phone. Like you know, in my father's generation, all, all journalists were on the phone all the time, uh, and right. now they're not. Right? But do you get that from 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 people from colleagues like um, this sort of uh, astonishment at how much the idea of talking to people has disappeared from from the job? Like, you know, the, the, well, I, I talk to people all the time, like with that, I, that I sort of grew up in the job with, and they all talk about the same thing. Like everybody's looking for links. Nobody's on the phone. Nobody talks to anybody. Like, yeah. well, because Matt, this is a profession, which especially in its sort of mainstream liberal form now distrusts people as such people as such have a one out of two. Uh, chance of being an insurrectionist or a racist or, or, you know, a bad, wrong-thinking person. What journalism now specializes in is waiting in line to talk to the same expert. You know, um, the, the, the former intelligence agency chief, the John Hopkins professor, the, um, you know, Nate Silverish statistician. Like, sometimes I think that these... 50 or 100 experts who are generating about a third of the news now must, you know, they must almost be like uh, uh, professional uh, um, witnesses in, in, in trials. Right. Like, you know, they're, they're so in demand that they must be getting paid because they're apparently spending their whole day talking, you know, to a circle of journalists. And, and that is no exaggeration. It really isn't. I mean, I have opened the paper at times to read the opinion of a of, of some expert while while seeing them interviewed on TV at the same time, and then turning the station and finding they're popping up on that show too. <laughs> I mean, like uh, it, it, it's sort of like a a, a real um, a real shift. When I used to work at Time Magazine we had a joke that you could call Johns Hopkins University and get any um, sort of any um, social sociological fact checked, you know, that they they did so many studies there that you could find a study that backed or, you know, um, discredited almost any theory. That form of journalism is, is ascendant. And that man on the street journalism seems to be literally suspect because why should we now that now that the assumption is that we live among the misinformed and the disinformed why would we reify disinformation by interviewing people who are the victims of being misled you know right in other words yeah, no, the, ex- the man on the street is the least you know, the person having the experience is now, by our new definition, probably the most gullible and, um, and, and misinformed of anyone. We always have to go to the top now. 
if uh, you know you've got to have a degree you you know it's all the joke uh you know uh is there a uh, peer reviewed study that we can quote um now Double for blind. people to talk, yeah. yeah for people to talk about going to the store and not being able to afford their groceries you need a peer reviewed study to back up their subjective impression yeah it's amazing it's it's uh Remember Mark Halperin's whole Gang of 500 thing? How? No. Oh, I remember he was, he was the big campaign journalist and he had this. Oh, yeah, I remember that, who he is. Yeah, the big, and he had this theory that he was very proud of that there were 500 people in the country who decided who got to be president. And they were, you know, it was, it was the same 500 lobbyists, experts, um, donors and politicians and they were the only people he really needed to talk to and and so he, his column was supposedly va- so valuable because you know he he had the gang of 500 on his rolodex and 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 that's basically what journalism is right it's it's, it's everybody's talking to the same 500 people now so uh, well so i used to i used to love talk radio and i didn't care what the political views of the host were, because it was the only time I got to hear, you know, uh, just Joe, Joe truck driver call in and tell me what he was going through or whatever. And, you know, uh, because we have become a, a country divided between a certain kind of populism, a hyper populism and a hyper elitism, we, we, we now have news because it tends to come from the elite sector of society. You know, there aren't a lot of we don't have the Mike Royko's and the Jimmy Breslin's and Mike those Barnacle, old. You know. Yeah, the, 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 those those guys who like sat at the bar and, you know, heard about cops divorces and got, <laughs> you know, heard some story from the bartender and checked it out like that sort of. That sort of gumshoe working class journalism of the big city, that seems to have disappeared. And that was, to me, the original romance of journalism was to kind of get gossip and check it out. Um, That's so funny. I was actually a bar backer at one of those bars, like uh, the Lion's Head in in New York, uh, which is where a lot of those new like Jimmy Breslin, Marsha Kramer... Um, Pete Hamill, you know, Pete Hamill, Tom Wolf, like they would all hang out there, and um, and I thought that was that was a cool thing about the job, but uh, but yeah, it's kind of gone now. That and, and those voices are kind of gone, or too too right, like the people who were able to sort of speak in the vernacular of the. Of, yeah, yeah. I'm going to pay you a compliment, Matt. That's that's kind of what one of the things that you're great at. I mean, you still speak in the vernacular and in a kind of heightened vernacular, you actually invent, you know, phrases <laughs> like vampire squid and so on. And, and, and but 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 one of the reasons people love you is that you channel that old, colorful, full blooded spirit of invective and outrage, and, you know, uh, sort of a, a populist eye on the goings on of the, you know, of the fancy folk and. And there's a huge appetite for that. It's well, not that it's being fulfilled across the board, but it exists. <laughs> well, thank you, Walter. I really I, I appreciate it. that's right. That's a very that's a huge yeah. compliment coming from you. Um, well, well, 
Okay, well let's let's uh, let's talk to some folks uh, as as we talk yeah. about talking to each other. Uh, hang on a sec. Let's see if uh, Andrew, are you there? I think you got Hello, a Hello, sirs. Hello. Can you hear me? Yep. Great. Um, so I have a couple thoughts regarding the what I consider this is an encroaching medical tyranny. Essentially, when you were talking about the college students who were fully vaxxed, boosted, got COVID and had to or sorry, fully vaxxed and then got COVID and had to wait to get their booster. Yeah. Uh, and then some, we're, I'm assuming we're, this third booster is going to be eventually coming out. This uh, Israel's already on their fourth, but this is not a sustainable path medically. It's a logical fallacy to say that something that's safe to take once or twice or even three times is safe to take a fourth time, a fifth time, especially on reduced schedules. And so the problem is a lot of these things don't really matter in terms of them not making sense, because it seems that uh, you're talking earlier about what happened to the liberals, essentially. I think Nick was talking about, like, was there a switch at some point where their cultural warfare became, uh, they're the censors. And I think it hooks into um, the idea of, uh, I believe, Tom, um, Jesus, not Thomas Frieden. Um, oh, why can't I remember his name? He's he, Listen Liberal, the author of Listen Liberal. Oh, Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank, thank yeah. you. Thomas Friedman. Um, so he's basically saying that they've become the professional class and that they're the ones that they are the adults in the room, essentially. They know that they're the smart ones. They're the ones with the college degrees and their professional positions. So they basically get to tell us what to do and what harm is real and what harm isn't. And so this, this, I think that's part of what's shifted because in the past it was kind of the conservatives deciding that, for example, gay marriage was too harmful for society and we had to, they had to be the essentially the vanguards of morality in that situation. This is a little more intense, uh, medically speaking at least, injecting people, but uh, it's the same kind of idea that they're the guardians of, uh, basically they're the protectors, they're the adults and I don't know what we do because it seems like the conservative response is to simply just throw up their hands and say, well, we're not applying, you know, any kind of any kind of measures that might be useful just because we don't want to go down the slippery slope and kind of adhere to this. So what do you what do we do to break this framework or do you even think that's accurate? To be Well, I'll just say quickly, mm -hmm. you could not have a more slanted situation than the largest advertiser and corporate sponsor for the media, the pharmaceutical industry, being basically the subject of inquiry. In other words, you're less likely to get honest inquiry and divergent opinions and adversarial reporting in a press that is owned by big pharma than you are than you were when the defense industry maybe uh, was in charge of uh, big sectors of american society or the oil industry was i mean this is a worst case scenario uh in the sense that that institution in society which is which requires most scrutiny is also the one which owns more politicians, more publications. I mean, Jake Tapper is literally brought to you by Pfizer. His <laughs> segments on CNN are introduced as such. 
you are in a snake eating its tail situation when the subject of journalism is the greatest advertiser. And you know, just to follow up on that, people forget that, uh, when was it, Walter? Was it 1997? Until 1997, they weren't allowed to advertise, right? No. Uh, so so my, fa- my father was a patent lawyer for the 3M Corporation. Mm-hmm. He was there when they brought... They bought the, basically they bought the patent for the for the N95 mask. Anyway, he spent his life suing Johnson and Johnson. Basically, <laughs> they were the biggest infringer on 3M's um, medical patents. And he told me when that change came about, when when pharmaceutical companies were allowed to advertise in them, you know, on television and so on. He said, "This country." is going to rue the day that it allowed this to happen. And of all the prophecies of the late Walter Kern Jr., that one is the one that rings in my ear most often. You know, it's a, that's a horrible story, but you know what's, what's interesting about that is that it, it is a sequence of events that, that leads to that, I think, right? Like, so, so you have... You have this great hollowing out of the revenue model for for the news business. You know, they lose their advertising base, like they lose all their their classified ads to the internet uh in the early nineties and they couldn't live without the pharma ads now, right? Like what would would cable news even exist uh without without pharmaceutical ads right now. So it, I, well, you I, know I what, you know one, what, one influences the other is what I'm trying to say is that the, the their, their desperation, um, is, is, uh, is like twofold, right? Like not, they, they, not only do they have these people as advertisers that are influenced by them, but they, they know that they wouldn't be able to survive without them. So when I used to work at time magazine, I, in the nineties, when time was still a going concern and, you know, the hit of the dentist office, you fought for it when you got to, you know, your dermatologist appointment. Um, we did stories that usually weren't breaking stories. You know, sometimes a war would break out or a celebrity would die. But we had these other stories that we kind of kept um, ready. And they would be on things like the new science of happiness. Um, and, and that was, and, and they would be basically pharma driven stories. Um, you know, our children can't pay attention. That would be brought to you by, you know, the makers of AD and D drugs. Yeah. And, 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 you know, depression with the nineties, remember how happy it was, but it was all about depression. I mean, like there, there was, there was hardly any depression compared to now, that I, as I look around, but God, every magazine had depression on the cover story. Listening to Prozac, the Prozac Diaries, the, it was a culture that was all about these new antidepressants. Well, anyway, that breakthrough that those companies made into not just controlling the news, but being the news, supporting the news, is it, it has has only grown to monstrous proportions and seems irreversible now. I mean, sometimes I feel like the president gets on TV 
just after having been chewed out by the CEO of Pfizer, you know, <laughs> uh, and and I know that Jake Tapper brought to you by Pfizer gives extra prominence to those, you know, now as he sort of tactfully is backing away from some of the biggest and most outlandish claims for the vaccine, you know, it must be hard. Uh, I mean, they're probably administering shocks through his seat, you know, as he tries to speak. Um <laughs> But but it's really at that level, because anybody who's ever worked at a magazine knows instantly and without any audible communication who they ultimately work for. Um, and they hope they'll never come up against them. The honest reporter like Matt hopes that they'll never if they back when Matt worked for, you know, big magazines, hopes that his reporting will never come up against the big advertisers and, you know? and, and for me it only did a couple of times so how about did, 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 how about you did how often did that happen mm, well you know in the heyday matt the biggest advertiser before the second to the pharmaceutical industry industry was the vodka industry right you know absolute vodka owned the back page and some middle spread in every magazine that existed and I, so I never did an anti-vodka story or a story about, you know, um, you know, mothers against drunk driving. Uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't run into that conflict. Um, my, my experience as a journalist is more that I would run into stories that mm, were damaging to favored politicians. Mm -hmm. And that would happen at places like Time the, the, the real consensus-driven, you know, uh, middle-of-the-road magazines, you know. And I would discover that some major Clinton advisor was just a horrific liar. And I'd want to say so, you know, but couldn't. Right, right. Um, well, uh, well, Andrew, Andrew Can I ask one quick sure. follow-up? Uh, do you think that the consumers of these media outlets even care that they're brought to you by Pfizer? Because... I, I see it as a problem, but I'm not sure they do at all. And I'm also not sure they don't see it as a benefit. Like, who else should be sponsoring them? They're the ones that made the drug. I mean, uh, it, it seems obvious on its face that it's an issue, and they don't seem to care. It's, it's very... Uh, well, I, I, I've got an answer for that one, because it, it ties into another issue that drives me crazy, which is the, you know, the prevalence of ex-intelligence officials who are suddenly now you know, every second anchor person. Um, and uh, when you complain about that, one of the things that people will say is, well, what's wrong with that? They're the people who know, you know? And I, like for the, the, the total disconnect that you have to have to, to, to have that reaction, it, like, I, I don't even know how to approach the person who, who has that react. Like, in other words... You know, like with the FBI or the CIA or the NSA, if, if, and you know, if you have an ex um, intelligence official on the air, these people, the, their whole purpose, they're trained to manipulate facts and lie. Like that's that's their job. It's completely antithetical to what what the journalist's job is supposed to be. And there's and and that's the reason that you should be suspicious of them. 
and I think people think the same. They have the same naivete about uh, you know drug company officials, who, by the way, I've started to notice are appearing as experts more and more often on the air too. I can't remember uh, the, the name of the person I just saw, but um, it's starting to remind me a little bit of the Iraq War period when you, suddenly there are former generals on the air all the time. If you <laughs> remember that, uh, Walter. But um, oh yeah, but yeah, you have you have to be you have to be crazy to not understand the problem with with pharmaceutical uh, companies having an influence over the news because uh, you know they're com- it's bad enough that they sponsor studies uh, but you know I don't but, know but, 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 but I, I mean this is going to offend I can just hear people you know clicking off out there but we live in a country where our chief health official for governmental and media purposes Dr. Anthony Fauci is also mentioned, at least mentioned, in every single account of the origins of the virus, either as a manipulated virus or one that was captured wild. Now, in other words, we have the greatest conflict of interest, and that's the word, probably ever, you know, ever conceived of, crystallized and 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 in person and humanized in the face of our pandemic response now we used to call that conflict of interest we used to say that if you made money from something or if you knew someone involved in the story or if you made money from some aspect of of the story you, you you couldn't comment on it now what used to be considered a flaw having a conflict of interest is considered a virtue because if you're on just as matt said if you're on the inside now where the where the conflicts of interests are you know in most intense with government and corporate uh stories you're considered an expert conflict of interest is is considered to be a um uh it's evidence yeah. Evidence of your evidence of having been read in evidence of having, you know, being knowledgeable. And so we have taken what was the first commandment in journalism, which was your, your sources or, or, or you shall police for conflict of interest, you know, and, and, and turned it upside down and said, you should seek out those who have the most conflict the intelligence heads reporting on war, the pharmaceutical spokesman reporting on the effectiveness of a vaccine or the pharmaceutical CEO, and go to them first. And I mean, it's really, I, I'm, it sounds like I'm being facetious, but I'm not being at all facetious in this respect. What was thought in the past to disqualify someone from from at least being the sole commentator on a story. I mean, you expected a general to feed you bullshit about his own accomplishments in the war. You expected a corporate head to feed you PR about the vast success of their company and its, and, and its you know, um, loving kindness to all people. You expected a politician to, you know, sing the praises of the party platform. 
but you did not credit them with truth. <laughs> yeah, it's that it is amazing, right? I mean, like uh, I remember, you know, the the reaction I had when they when they hired um, John Brennan and James <laughs> Clapper, uh, you know, and, and and my first thought when it, when it, you know when I saw that they were hiring the ex directors of the CIA, Michael Hayden was another one, um, was that okay? Well, you know. Theoretically, I guess you could have them comment on certain general topics, uh, but they would have to recuse themselves from all the ones that they were directly involved in, at least, right? And it turned out to be the opposite. Like, in other words, like they they would have Brandon and Clapper and all those guys, and they would bring them on to talk about the stories that they themselves were mo- like most directly involved with. Uh, as if it was reporting. I don't know. Anyway, but the, but but this new thing with Fauci, I mean the the, the new emails that have come out, um, that have just been released. I mean, they're kind of shocking. Like, and uh, the fact that people aren't jumping all over that story is is is, uh, is sort of amazing to me too. To point out the conflict of interest, you are now accused of being a conspiracy theorist. So thank you, fellow conspiracy theorists and uh, <laughs> grifters. And I'm not sure how I'm making money off this, but I'm sure I'm a grifter too. So thank you so much for your time. Well, right. ju- ju- journal- journal- journalists aren't supposed to be conspiracy theorists. They're supposed to be conspiracy finders. You right. know, we're, that, we're 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 supposed to, you know. Anybody like Matt who's done financial, high-level financial reporting knows that without conspiracy, they can't play their, they can't commit their crimes. You know, it's never an individual who suddenly gamed the system. They always have to have partners and, and, and corrupt regulators and all sorts of things. So the notion that conspiracy, which really just means meeting, meeting up, um, talking on the phone is, is some sort of, uh, you know, is some sort of beyond the pale charge to make is, is ridiculous. I mean, wasn't Watergate a conspiracy? And weren't the people who exposed it supposedly the great lions of journalism for their generation? Wasn't the Pentagon Papers a conspiracy to hide the real progress of the war? Wasn't, you know, uh, every story that isn't the story of a weather or an individual murder in some sense, the story of a conspiracy. Um, and, and, and so, you know, that, that they've made that word radioactive journalists should come up with another word for it. That isn't radioactive because it really is our job to find out whether people who shouldn't be cooperating to do ill are. Absolutely. That's what yeah. Yeah, conspiracy literally means uh, breathe together, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the word, right? Uh, and they do, you know, like uh, these these uh, bureaucrats, they 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 breathe together. Uh, a, a Texas a Texas billionaire once on a private island. Can you imagine a more romantic setting? A Texas billionaire <laughs> on a private island in the Bahamas once told me. He said, "Kern, conspiracies. How else do you think shit gets done?" <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Um, all right, let, let's let's see. Let's take a couple more. Uh, Chris, are you there? Uh, by the way, thank you, Andrew. 
Hey, Matt. Hey, Walter. Uh, Hi, Chris. Hey there. Appreciate you guys hosting this. This is a really productive and illuminating conversation. So I uh, just want to say oh, thank, thank you. you. Um, so kind of taking a step back from a macro viewpoint of things, uh, when we talk about social media, I mean, is the effort to fight against this bureaucratic conglomerate, uh, like this trickle-down values from the elite, is it almost futile if we're using the platforms that they control, like Twitter, Facebook? I mean, even Google now, you can't even go on the uh, mobile website without being suggested the top searches, which we really don't know how much those are manipulated. So it seems like whenever we use these uh, these these traditional popular um, uh, websites or platforms, uh, the message is already kind of uh, made for us. So in some ways, is social media, is the medium the message? And how do we circumvent that? Uh, how do we still take advantage of the reach that the internet gives us, um, but not falling into the pitfalls. Uh, yeah, thanks. No, that's a great question. Walter, you want to, do you want to take a shot at that one first? Well, so I was around for the origins of the internet as a popular phenomenon in the early nineties. I wrote a story for GQ called Valley of the Nerds, which was about the influence of sort of psychedelic Northern California subcultures on the burgeoning tech world. And it was thought at the time, because there was a lot of utopianism, that the internet would be a thing which empowered the individual more than the, you know, you're cut, you're, it's the early 90s, it's the late 80s. You're coming, you still have the hangover of Vietnam, Watergate, you know, Iran, Contra, and so on. And the internet is seen as the first great um, the first great blow against the establishment, the thing that's going, it, it's like the Colt 45 was in the wild west. It's the equalizer. You know, you're going to be able through your ability to communicate in an unmediated fashion with others, you know, uh, to, to share information without the meddling of power. And, and, and the internet, proceeded along that track for quite a while. But along the time of the late 90s when Google was established and then into the 2000s with the, with the reign of Facebook and so on, you saw a complete inversion of that model. The Internet was now the most controllable thing in the history of mankind. It was the most surveilled thing, and it was the most manipulated thing, and it was the most capital-intensive thing, to the point where the list of companies shrunk every day, you know, um, the, 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 from, you know, uh, sort of fringe forms of social media and so on, to the, to the few uh, oligarchical uh, castles that we have now. So, so, so the internet, in other words, ex exactly reversed course as a, an empowerment tool um, and as a sort of grassroots uh, aid to, to knowledge and communication. Can you use this present internet to question authority 
when it is the very essence of authority laid out in a network. You still can. That's the, that's the thing. You still can to a certain extent. I mean, journalists and, and controversialists and gadflies have always operated under the umbrella of, 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 of the system. You know, they've always had to do their job watched and frustrated and manipulated by power. But they learned ways to do it. And there are still journalists who know how to do it and are, who are more importantly courageous enough to try. That they're being systematically silenced, marginalized, demonized is to be expected, but they still exist. And we're proof of it right now. <laughs> uh, now, the question is, can that, can that conflict, um, which seems to be tilting the way of the authorities, um, continue in this country? Not without some protection. I mean, and, 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 and government seems to be willing to offer almost none. In fact, as presently constituted, seems to be affirmatively promoting groupthink as healthy for all. Um, so it's happening. It still exists. It's still possible, but it's trending badly. Yeah. Yeah, I, w I would totally agree with that. That's, I, I think, you know, part, part of being uh, both a reporter um, or just any kind of writer is, you know, there, there's always a, a sales aspect or a salesmanship aspect to what you're doing, um, using the existing structures to try to amplify what you're, what you're saying. If, if the, if you work in big media, yeah, it sucks in a lot of ways, but it can be manipulated, um, in some ways too, that are interesting. Uh, if you know how to do it, um, you, it, it has a weakness for certain kinds of stories, for instance, right? So you, you know that you can, uh, you can sucker people into covering certain things if you, if you add the right angle. Um, however, but, you know, I, I think in this, uh, environment and, you know, the, the really stark example of what can happen to you if you go too far is, is Julian Assange, right? Um, it, it's a balancing act. You, you have, you have, to, you increasingly have to be careful, uh, to, to toe the line between, um, being provocative and just being eliminated, you know? Uh, so I, I, I think it's a tough dynamic, you know. The th the thing that the thing that infuriated me and and really almost radicalized me against this corporate regime in journalism was the RussiaGate story, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. And it's not because it was adversarial to Donald Trump. It's because the RussiaGate story, which was bullshit. I, I'm just here to tell you it was bullshit and it had bullshit sources and it, and it stemmed from, you know, high 
influence peddlers and 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 campaign officials and places like you know uh, the Brookings Institute and so on. It posed as Watergate. It posed as a um, as a outsider uh, exposure of the ways of power, when in fact it was just the opposite. It, it, it posed as muckraking, when in fact it was icing the cake of power, and 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 you know Pulitzer prizes were awarded, and 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 star reporters were 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 you know uh, were crowned in this supposedly um, in this supposedly uh, anti-authoritarian anti-authoritarian uh, a mega story which was being reported despite the, you know, despite the um, anger and fury of power. But in fact, it was just the opposite. It was a completely phony caricature of a Watergate-style investigation. And, and, and when I saw the press willing to pose as crusaders and outsiders on behalf of the most established political and intelligence and uh, even corporate entities in America, I was just, I, I was just like, this is the fall. This is the, uh, this is the travesty of all time. Yeah. That's, you know, uh, obviously you're not going to have to work too hard to get me to agree about, <laughs> about, you know, Russiagate being bullshit, but, um, yeah, I think one of the first things for me, because I initially, you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't pay attention to the story. I just thought it was silly at first, right? So, what do I know? Um, and but one of the first clues that that uh, this the story probably isn't real is that um, there was so much pressure to go along with it, and so much uh, pressure in the other direction not to say anything against it. So it, it was completely the opposite of what, like as a journalist, you know, when you're saying something risky because it's, yes. it's very, it's very overt. Like the, this, this is a business where they let you know right away when you've said something um, that crosses a line somewhere. Uh, but there was none of that with this story. Like, you know, uh, it, it was, it was completely in the other direction. Uh, you know, all those newspaper movies, those romantic movies, like all the president's men and spotlight in which the crusty editor says, you know, I'm not going to put the reputation of this paper <laughs> on the line for your half-baked reporting. You get me, you know, you get me a witness in the next 36 hours or we're killing this story forever and I'm firing you, you know. <laughs> That 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 that's the supposed newsroom dynamic when you're going up against power. In Russiagate, it was you know, get me more people from the DNC to be outraged about this by tomorrow, or you know, we're going to pay somebody else hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> to write this story. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, there was the Jason Robards character in this movie. Uh... Yeah, he, he wasn't saying sticking inside somewhere. He was, he was, he was, uh, he was saying, there's plenty uh, of reporters who, who want to get rich off Russia gate. <laughs> Quit giving me your half-assed stuff. I want you to talk to Strobe Talbot, Hillary Clinton, and, uh, you know, um, 
uh, whoever, whoever else to my by tomorrow and John Brennan. Right, right. Clapper, all those guys. Yep. Uh, That's really funny. There was very little meeting in parking structures around (laughs) Russiagate. That was a a great scene. Uh, Okay, Chris, we'll just do a couple more if that's okay, Walter. You you cool with us? Yeah, guys. Um, Thanks a lot, Chris. Appreciate it. Um, I think it's Kevin is next. (coughs) Kevin, are you there? Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yep. Hey, Matt, yep. Walter, this is an honor, man. This is really freaking cool. Um, Excellent. Thank you. First of all, Matt, I, I just want to thank you again for your piece yesterday. I, I felt like genuine gratitude after reading that. It was it was just like, you know, thank you. Like, we, this is something I think a lot of us are having conversations about. Just, you know, like, as, as Walter said, regular folks, I'm in Ohio, which, by the way, shout out to Walter. You're born in Akron, were you? Oh, yeah. Akron, St. Thomas Hospital, man. All right. Yep. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a Clevelander, so we can get along. But um, but no, it, it was um, it was so refreshing, and I think that um, it, it speaks to a lot of different things. And and one is that like you know, we talk about regulatory capture a lot. I, I, unfortunately, I don't think comedy is immune to that because you know we're, we're seeing it now. I mean, one of the most disturbing aspects of that just horrible, cruel, nasty sketch was the one bit where um, the doll does her own research, quote unquote. Oh, I know. And, and it wouldn't be so insidious if it wasn't, you know, what we were hearing a lot. Because there was, was there a whole New York Times article saying, uh, careful now, do not do your own research. That's the last thing you want to do. And, and that, you know, this, this trusty experts, and you guys have been talking about it too, it doesn't just pertain to COVID. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's war, it's this, it's that. It's like, you know, it, 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 when you really get like a bigger, you know, kind of a, a macro view of it, it really does seem like it's like this, it's enormous, uh, I almost want to call it tyrannical technocracy where, you know, all of us kind of need to fall in line. And I think especially after, you know, 2015, 16 with Brexit and Trump, I would imagine that freaked the hell out of the establishment. So now it's just been cranked up to 11 where it's just like, you know, just shut up, do what you're told. Even if it doesn't make sense, you're not allowed to question things. And, you know, what's really disconcerting for me is that there seems to be this conflation between quote unquote conspiracy theories and, and critical thinking. You know, I, I feel like critical thinking, and you guys mentioned this too, is kind of a, an essential uh, you know, tenant of, you know, not only just like being in this country, but just being anybody. And, and you know, you have to be question of power. The idea that these people are, you know, it, it's that there's some like holy, you know, Dr. St. Anthony Fauci or, or Robert Mueller. These people are like these venerable figures. It's just, it, it's so, so troubling. And um, my, my question, I suppose, is like, what's the best tool to combat this? I mean, is, is it effective satire? More of what you guys are doing? And, you know, because humor does help. And lastly, I want to read something that Walter tweeted uh, a couple months ago because I think eventually we're going to have like social media awards for like you know, recognizing <laughs> the the most excellent, outstanding in social media. And Walter, you wrote this, and I, I was like saying it to people because I thought it was just so brilliant. But um, you were right about the metaverse. You wrote, "quote The immaterialists have made a crucial and devastating category error with their rush to contrive a patentable reality. All we really wanted was a hamburger and a cold drink and a smile from our date." They're giving us virtual Xanadu and a picture of a burger. Like, that just, that nails it, man. So I, I just want to thank you for that. And, you know, that to me, that captures the, our best defense against this total insanity. Just the, 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 the brilliance, the humor and all that. And so keep doing what you guys are doing. And it's awesome to talk to you. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, I, I, I have to say, I had, have to say that the, 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 what appeared to be the most trivial part of his question 
the preface that we're both from Ohio was, I think, the most important part of it. <laughs> we, we have a national myth uh, and, a, and a great musical called The Wizard of Oz, which, which, which I think warms the heart of every child, at least initially, because it's, 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 uh, it, it, its message is sort of, and remember Dorothy's a Midwesterner, but, but Holden Caulfield felt the same way, and he was an Easterner. Its message was, look behind the curtain. Don't be buffaloed by, 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 by power, money, glamour, smoke, and mirrors. Make sure that you take a peek at the, at, 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 at the, at the hidden aspects of reality. Now, the opposite of that is Chris Cuomo telling us on CNN that it's illegal for private citizens to look at WikiLeaks. <laughs> we can do that as journalists. He actually said this on TV. He, he literally said, I know you've seen behind the curtain and seen that the Wizard of Oz is actually this little con man uh, 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 from, you know, from Kansas. But uh, pretend you never saw that. In fact, it's illegal for you to have seen that. So if you can, wipe your memory banks and we'll tell you what to think. And when I saw that moment on CNN, a journalist actually demanding in curiosity from the audience, I went, okay, the country I know is dead. The Midwestern, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to look behind the sideshow and, or, you know, uh, see the, see the naked lady getting dressed or, or, you know, the emperor's new clothes myth, you know, of being that little kid who stands up and says hey you know he's naked he's a fat naked man um that was being systematically and affirmatively repressed and this whole notion that we now have a professional priesthood because because throughout trump what we heard about journalists was that they were the most persecuted they'd ever been you know that they were one minute from being thrown into camps by Donald Trump and, and, and how dare we insult their profession. And they exalted themselves into something resembling medieval priests. We read Latin. Please, you don't want to look at the Bible. We'll tell you what's in it. And, and it was the most un-Midwestern thing I'd ever seen <laughs> in my life. And, 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 and so... If anything, I'm, I'm, I'm standing up for a cultural tradition of uh, seeing for yourself. Missouri, the show me state. Ohio, the state that, that, that you know, of James Thurber, who laughs at the fancy people and so on. And, and, and I don't want to let that go. Yeah, no, that's, the, that's so true. Yeah, the, and the, the whole that one scene with the you know does her own research thing yeah I, I had the same reaction that that was the that was the key part of that whole the, the most offensive part of that whole skit to 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 go get into that a little bit more that whole instinct about how we're the priesthood and and we speak the latin and you don't like i i went through that in a very graphic way uh covering wall street um because i you know, i was assigned in 2008 Obama got elected uh, 
to cover to do a story about how um the AIG thing happened and I'd never mm-hmm. done anything about uh fin- I'd never covered finance before I knew nothing about economics um and then you, and I wasn't learning anything from the the press reports because all they all they were saying were things like well this was this was like a a, per- a perfect storm there was overinvestment in in mortgage securities it was just a bad mis- it was a, a weather event and when then when I had people actually walk me through you know, I was asking questions. I was saying, well, how does this work? What What is a mortgage-backed security? Like, how do they put it together? And then when they when they actually explained it to me, and, you know, the, basically the idea is you get a whole, you get a thousand mortgages in a pool, and, you know, you wave a magic wand over it, and as long as, you know, 89% of them don't fail... In a, in a given month, well, then that strip strip of the pool you can rate triple A, except that every loan in the pool is actually junk rated. Uh, and so my immediate, just ordinary person reaction once it was explained to me was, "That's insane. That doesn't work. You know, like the, it's it's corrupt. It uh, it's a scam." And and. Uh, and the reaction immediately from all the financial journalists was, well, you just don't, you, you don't understand what we're talking about. Um, you don't get it. This is not your territory layoff. Right. And, and Matt, I have a question for you. Did you experience that as sincere concern or panic that you were ruining the game because you hadn't gotten the memo that our job is to protect these people and every once in a while say something that gives us enough credibility to seem like they're adversaries. Or did you think they were sincerely, believingly uh, shocked by what you were doing? Well, I, I, yeah, I think it was a couple of things. I, first of all, I think it was just like, uh, you know, as Mencken would say, they were job holders, right? So the, the whole idea that a, an outsider would, would come in and try to do what they did was like offensive on some level. So they were mad about that. Um but then the, I, I think the other aspect of it was most of the people who I tangled with in the business um, sincerely believed that, you know, that they understood the truth and I didn't. And, um, and that, you know, I, I was out of my league and that they had a responsibility to tell, every, uh, to tell their readers that what I was saying wasn't true, similar to what you see now with a lot of the, you know, sort of non-approved reporting on the vaccine or or COVID or whatever or whatever it is. But that experience of that happening was was, um, you know, I, I just never I'll never forget that because uh, it just it was so illustrative of of how those people thought. Um, and you know, once you're, it's like it's like being a frog in the boiling water. If you if you cover a bunch of people for a long enough time, you start to think like they do. And uh, every now and then, that's 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 why you occasionally need the amateur, uh, or more than occasionally, to just look at the data <laughs> and, and see and and see if it makes sense or not. I mean, the the, right. the site 
the site Zero Hedge, which has gone in some pretty bizarre directions um, mm-hmm. since then. But it became famous initially because it was just looking at data, public data, and making some conclusions about Gold- Goldman Sachs's behavior during, uh, before and during the crash that turned out to be sort of right, you know? And... Um, and that was a new thing, like to have an amateur suddenly become the the thing that was read on the street, right? So, uh, but just to answer the yeah, just just to get back to that question, the the, the whole notion of of not letting people um, sort of interpret the news themselves and telling them that they're unqualified to understand unless it's contextualized for them properly, and that's. That's why all those fact checks, it's so frustrating. Like, they'll say things, well, it needs context. That's their conclusion, right? Did, did, did Anthony Fauci lie about masks? They, they won't say yes. They'll say no. It needs to, that, cl- that claim needs context, right? And, okay, and what, you know what? You know what has, you know what has maximum context? Everyday <laughs> life. Everyday oh, life. Right. Just walk around and it, there's all context. As a journalist, my job is to remove context. In other words, I take away excuses. I take away institutional um, explanations. And I try to get to the acute, simple, stripped away heart of the matter. Adding context always means adding excuses in my journalism experience. And it always means... Yeah, but you got to make the picture bigger. Well, if you, if you, let's say we have a murder on a certain corner. If we want to add context, we go up to 8,000 feet, 10,000 feet, 50,000 feet. And pretty soon the murder just disappears into the blinking urban landscape and, you know, satellite photo of America. My job is to get close to the story, not to bring you out to a point where it all just flows into the, you know, context of context. And they never want you to do that. They never want you to isolate the crime. They never want you to isolate the bad actor. They never want you to name the moment when, when the deed was done. And yeah. so, you know, if you want context, look at a shot of the United, look at a shot of the globe from space. That is the most context you will get. You know, uh, especially if you see it in in the context of the entire solar system and then the whole Milky Way. But you won't get a story that way. You'll get a non-story. You'll get a solid state miasma of, you know, (laughs) undifferentiated events. And so I want to do the close up. And that's what they always discourage. And they call it and they're and they're they're all purpose. Their all-purpose criticism is that you haven't provided context. You know, the context for Watergate is, hey, every political leader is corrupt and, you know, all around the world and for 100 years. And let's just keep pulling out for a wider and wider shot until every actual um, act of, you know, uh, every actual piece of misbehavior just floats into human sinfulness in general. Right. Nixon, um, he would have won anyway, Nixon. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's context, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's in that sense, 
the, the name of that movie about newspapers, Spotlight, is correct. My job is to throw a spotlight on something, not show the a bigger and bigger picture of the stage to the point where, you know, the, the, the bad actors turn into dots. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, all right. Well, one last one, Walter, if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Let's see. I think it's Randall. Randall, are you there? Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, nice. It's an honor to talk to you guys, really. Um, Thanks, Randall, for coming on. I, I just want to tell you, in like 2017, as someone who's always considered himself a liberal, there was a while there where I thought if I, I wondered if I was losing my mind or if it was all the other liberals, right? Um, <laughs> I appreciate you being there. But um, I just wanted to, I was thinking of something you said earlier about liberals no longer challenging pikes. And um, I think a big part of it is because we won the culture war. And, and rather than, you know, attacking, we're now playing defense and, and kind That's of a, took on our own moral majority. Right. And, um, and it's like, we have to, now we have to hold the immoral people back from the fort and, and keep the, keep the bad stuff away from it. I think that, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Walter. I mean, let me let me think about this for a second, Walter. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, success breeds conservatism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when you've got something to protect, you tend to become, um, you know, a fan of the status quo, right? When you're winning, you want to keep your you want to keep your lead, and 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 so that's a very human um, and um, uh, eternal impulse that you have uh that you have observed and i think it does explain a lot of the so-called liberals willingness to sort of sit on their lead um worship authority identify with institutions and call for a a moratorium on change and a moratorium on questioning that does explain a lot but and, there is and the a pulse that I really remember is when, when you know, when the moral majority would try to ban, you know, music and even Tipper Gore music or the last temptation of Christ or whatever. And, and there was this feeling that it, that we have to keep this away from everyone, lest the lowest common denominator get it and do something awful with it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like I feel like that's how the professional class behaves today. Well, the corporations voted. Right. And they voted with Eminem, and they voted with, you know, uh, violence in movies, and they voted against the moral majority. So, so in other words, the product that used to be sort of considered, you know, X-rated and had to be labeled and so on is now, you know, is now everyday stock in the great store. You, you got to look at where the money goes. And... The so-called culture wars were kind of bad for business in a way. They were saying, you know, like, there's all this product that ha- there's a demand for, but you shouldn't be allowed to sell it for moral reasons. Well, that, you know, that game's over. Yeah, anything that sells, I mean, anything gets, anything that gets clicks, except for political controversy now, um, or, you know, public health controversy is welcome into the market 
So in that sense, liberals won the culture war. But what they really did was they won the, the market. And, and, and so they have market share to protect. But, but there's a, there, there is an element of their behavior which is not explained by the conservatism that comes with success. And that is the cruelty. The, the, the thing that you see in the Kimmel, um, in the Kimmel routine, which talks about, alludes to death, ventilators, which uh, alludes to the need to censor your own curiosity. You know, let's make fun of research. The need to make fun of, you know, regional uh, people or their idea of less educated regional people when they go after Kentucky. That's, there's a vengefulness and a puritanical zeal to that that is not merely being fat and happy having won the culture wars. That's wanting not just to win, but to destroy the enemy such that there will never be another game because they had no right to contest you in the first place and certainly no right now. And that element is the one that upsets me. I'm fine with the, with the, the ebb and flow of the zeitgeist. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. Sometimes you're, you know, in the Reagan majority and sometimes you're in the Obama majority. That's fine with me. But the attempt to consolidate gains through vengeful, demonizing, scapegoating, censoring, and other tools of authoritarianism is what's new. And that's where I draw the line. That's the new element. That's where my objections lie. And that's, for me the moral heart of this for journalists because journalists are supposed to be about more information not the right persons or the right institutions version and insofar as they don't defend that principle they will be eaten too and have been yeah and and yeah it's funny like i i think about this in a couple of ways the you know, when I when I was growing up, liberals were always so far from being winners uh, that the, there wasn't even a possibility of having this conversation. Like that they were that they were they were going to win the culture war. Like there there was no such thing. In, you know that that we really thought of as a as a true liberal who was also an oligarch. At the, you know back in the day, right? Like I, I at least I can't remember those people but i think it started to switch with people like bob rubin in the 90s you know when when you started to see these big wall street hotshots who were no longer uh sort of reflexively republicans um and they started the people who were running things started started to become at least social liberals right uh and that was that was new then the other thing was, you know, you talk about where the sympathies of journalism journalists lie. Uh, you know, once upon a time, I think uh, journalists always saw themselves as outsiders. At least they were in, you know, in my father's generation. Like they, 
they never identified with people in power. That would have been impossible. The, the, there was just too much mutual animosity there, at least this, from what I understood. Um, but once I started to, to, to come on the job in the 90s, suddenly there was this, there was this new dynamic of journalists sort of being invited behind the rope line and this concept of we're all friends, we're socially the same people, we hang out together, um, you know, in this in the same parts of Washington DC and and the uh, Upper West Side and L.A. Um, and so they, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I I think I think there is something to this idea that the it was just never possible to even dream about being in charge of anything before. And maybe there's but, some, yeah, go ahead. But you know, Matt, I, 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 I would, I would also just add an asterisk to this conversation and, and question the, 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 the um, questioner's premise. Mm-hmm. Have, have liberals won the culture wars? Um, perhaps, but wars go, you know, both ways. And there is evidence that in fact, there, if they have won, their victory may be temporary and it may be superficial in this respect. The biggest late night comedy show on TV beating all of the network shows like Jimmy Kimmel is a show on cable news. Greg Gutfeld, he gets higher ratings than every one of them. Not all of them put together, but any one individually. Um, across the internet, if you look at you know traffic on YouTube channels and so on, you know, let's say the Joe Rogan show versus CNN. Oh, it's, it's not, not even close. Yeah, it's not. It's not. You know, uh, if you look at Tucker Carlson's rating versus even Rachel Maddow's, the most popular of the liberal uh, cable channel uh, journalists, it's it's not clear that this victory in the culture wars, which appears to be secure is really that deep. And let's not forget that we just, in 2016, elected, and in 2020, almost elected, a real estate, a right-wing real estate salesman from New York City. Right. You know, uh, so, so, like, the notion that, the notion that mm, we are in some sort of final state of wokeness, or whatever it might be, or of, or of liberal establishment, um, a consensus has yet to be proved to me, but certainly among a certain class, it would seem that it would seem that that victory is secure. But outside of that class, and outside of these places, and outside of these certain platforms, it's not at all clear. That uh, that's a really good point. It's. Uh, th- I, I- they may have a monopoly or a near monopoly on a certain sector of people, but that's not very many people, <laughs> right? Uh, they're they're not as they're not as numerous as uh, as they they're they're influential, but not but not numerous, uh, maybe. Uh, but, yeah, uh, and th- and thus you see stories in the Washington Post about how elites should somehow be given a greater. I mean, I forget the headline, should be given a greater say in the running of the country. After the 2016 election, the Washington Post ran a graph 
that showed by 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 uh, per capita income which districts had voted for whom, and 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 it, it was able to conclude that ninety percent or something of the gross national product of the United States had voted for Hillary Clinton. In other words, you know, it might have been fifth, around 50-50 in terms of a head count, but in terms of money, 90% of the money had voted for one side and lost the head count. Um, and this was presented as a problem for America. Why isn't money getting its way in this electoral process when it gets its way in everything else um and i think they're still a little frustrated about that right right um I, and I, I think that's a good place to to stop because it will, we, we can bring that back to catch 22 here at the end because uh, go ahead and you know if i could real quick please. oh randall is that i think we lost you Okay. Okay. Sorry. I'm like among the liberals oh. I know, and I'm from. I'm sorry. I think we lost Durandal. That's okay. Yeah. We're gonna wrap. We're gonna wrap up anyway. But I just, but I just thought um, it, it was funny. But you were talking about how the elite should have more, uh, more of a say in things. I mean, that's str- again, that's straight out of Catch Twenty Two. Remember the the Texan uh, who who in the hospital who kept talking about how uh, people of means, decent folks should be given more votes uh, <laughs> right. than right. The, the drifters, whores, criminals, and degenerates and atheists and all that. Uh, people right. without means. Um, you know, it, it, that was a joke in the book, but it's like, it's, it's, it's a thing now, right? It's real. So uh, at the, at the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, catch 22, you have a scene. I, I supposedly, I guess it takes place in, in a city like Rome or something. And, and instead of MPs rounding up the prostitutes and, and drunken sailors, uh, the forces of Milo Minderbender Enterprises, who are wearing MM on their sleeves in a kind of neo-fascist patch, are, are, are in charge, apparently, of Italy. You know, um, and <laughs> you see John Voigt as Milo Minderbender Riding in an open car, sort of in an obvious allusion to Mussolini, he's the new, you know, he's the new commandant. He's the new Führer, yeah. And 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 so, in some respect, it, you know, insofar as Catch Twenty Two and 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 our current situation resemble each other, that could be a Pfizer patch for me, <laughs> or, or you know, on on that sleeve. Sure. You are watching. The advertisers, you are watching big tech, you are watching the conglomerate run through the streets or, or sort of roll through the streets with its arm out in salute to, you know, its own greatness. And it seems to be unstoppable. <laughs> the United States brought to you by Pfizer. Yeah. <laughs> or the metaverse, which to me is like reality, PM, you know. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Walter, thank you so much for coming out. This was really fun. We should we should do this thank again you, sometime. Man, anytime. Yeah, yeah. And uh, thank you to everybody who uh, who came out. Had a lot of lot, lot of folks uh, today. And um, uh, I'll uh, I'll publish this soon. And we'll uh, uh, and Walter. Thanks again. And uh, thank you everybody for coming.
Thank you. See you again. All right.